Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. Another incredible weekend of sports is in the book. Justin Thomas is your PGA champion. Stanley Cup playoffs and the NBA playoffs are just, they're coming to their crescendo. There's too many things. My head is hurting. I've been listening to a bunch of NFL podcasts. I don't know where to turn at this point in time. I have many thoughts as you're going to get this week on these two shows and also via my newsletter, which if you have not subscribed, you need to do so. Go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, put your email address in every Wednesday morning. We're going to get an accentuant to this show where I talk about all those topics and more. So enough of that. Let's get on to today's show because there's too many things to discuss. Uh, The PGA Championship, Stanley Cup Playoffs, and the search for alignment between body and line. Now, close your eyes. Today we talk about the blend of mind and body. We all have both of those things. We all have experiences with both of those things. My experiences with mind and body are probably going to be slightly different, but maybe in some ways similar to yours. Same with professional athletes, same with just random Joe Schmo on the streets. For most of us, especially at an amateur level, and I include myself in this, it's really hard to find both of these things working together at the highest level simultaneously. It just is. In my 20s, especially on my mid-20s and late 20s, my body was there, my mind, it's just kind of floating out there in the ether. I wasn't really able to understand and grasp that I would not have this consistent physical ability forever. At the time, I'd go and play basketball every day. I'd play pickup, I'd play city league, anywhere there was a basketball and a hoop and people I wanted in. And I never really would feel the effects of it as I learned that I would (laughs) 10 years later. I would go and play for hours and hours and go to bed and wake up and my body would feel normal and I'd go back and try to do the same thing. That was just the way that my body functioned at that time because I was younger. Um, And it led to a series of strange decisions, one of which was the first time I injured my ankle rather badly, just having this narrow-minded focus of, no, I want to play, I want to compete. Again, there's no stakes whatsoever. It's just I wanted to go and play basketball. And so I roll my left ankle really bad, high ankle sprain. And I'm pushing the envelope and I'm going, now I got to get back. So I'm bracing it up and I'm going and playing and then I'm re-injuring it over and over. And this leads to an ankle in present day (laughs) that I'm sitting there going, oh, it's significantly less flexible and mobile than my right ankle because I was a dumbass and just wasn't able to comprehend that there would be effects for doing something like that. (laughs) There's no, literally no reason for me to be going and trying to push the envelope with an ankle injury to go and play pickup basketball at my local church house or high school or junior high. And yet that's just what I was doing because my body felt like it was going to last forever. And my mind was willing to just go, yeah, just push the envelope. You like to compete. You value yourself as a competitor. Go and do this. That's why doing a lot of weird things like that at that time, you know, again, with no stakes whatsoever. City League basketball, I get my head opened up, I'm bleeding everywhere, a huge gaping wound on my forehead. Again, this is a City League basketball. The stakes are if you get to the very end, you win a Subway sandwich and a T-shirt. The stakes couldn't be lower. <laughs> and just because of how I was wired and how I thought or didn't think at the time, it's like, oh, let's just wrap this up and I'll worry about the rest later. I get a bunch of gauze and I'm taping my head and I've bled everywhere. So they have to stop the game to clean all of this blood all off, all off the junior high court. 
And it gives me enough time in the bathroom for 10 minutes and I'm compressing it and writing it and this bandage is getting red and I'm going, all right, I can't see out of the one eye because it's covering it. Just like, all right, ready to go. Go back in, play the rest of the game. <laughs> have my, I go over to my parents' house at the end of it, have my dad super glue my head back together because I didn't have health insurance at the time. Again, there's literally no reason to do these things. But that's just the way that I was. That's the way that a lot of people are when they're younger. You just don't really think of consequences or what's going on. My mid-30s now, kind of a reversal of that dynamic. The mind is 100% there, and I'm really cognizant of everything. The body, it, you know, I'm not saying it's completely broke down. It just comes and goes. It's, okay, I'm 36. The body ages less gracefully starting around now. So now I'm much more aware and willing to engage with how do I extend my physical ability? I could stretch. Uh, okay, massage. Okay, yoga. Okay, icing. Okay, just a lot of stuff that once people get into their 30s, they're more willing to do. They're more willing to even think about. Uh, sometimes it's not enough because that's just the way that life goes at this point in time. And, you know, I got to take a week off from golfing because my back hurts or I got to press pause on this specific physical activity because my shoulder is in a rut or this or that. Just, again, things that happen with age. Welcome to life moment, right? So I'm sure you're all hearing this and you have your own pushes and pulls with your body and with your mind. Maybe the dynamic's been different through the phases of your life. Maybe it's been similar to mine. But everybody has that, professional athletes included. Um, it's one of the glimmers within sports that I really like because I go, mm, to a certain extent, I can understand a lot of what goes into this just because I have a body and I have a mind and I fight my own battles with both. And when you see it out on a much more public stage with stakes that are much more clearly defined than what I have ever been a part of in City League basketball or in amateur golf, it's pretty compelling. There's a lot more money on the line. There's fame. There's legacy. There's all those things that we like to talk about. Again, it's a, a pretty big component of what makes professional sports compelling. Because I understand the collapse of the body or the mind, how those things are really hard to align. So when I see somebody going through similar stuff, I have sympathy. Or when I see somebody persevering in the face of physical or mental adversity, I go, ooh, that's pretty inspirational stuff, right? So I want to start today on the body side of things. I want to talk about the mind, and then I want to talk about one player specifically that really has found a pretty incredible equilibrium uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So on the body side, we're going to start with golf. Uh, the two sports I want to discuss today are professional golf and the NHL, which you would think don't have a lot of crossover from a fan perspective, but for the subject of today's show, I think there's incredible synergy between those two things. Professional golf, which I look at and say, this is the greatest mental test that you can be a part of. And the Stanley Cup playoffs, which I look at and go, this is an incredible physical test about as good as you're going to get in sports. But they also pull strongly on the opposite component. So the PGA Championship, just wrapped up over the weekend. Justin Thomas wins in a playoff over Will Zalatoris. The two people that I want to talk about in regards to the body were not necessarily huge stories in the week. One didn't even play. His name is Bryson DeChambeau. 
And he kind of really embodies that earlier stage mindset that I had in my 20s. That, you know, for a guy who considers himself to be the smartest person on earth, maybe Bryson is not really thinking things through in a way that he needs to. Because he has to withdraw from the PGA. He's been battling injuries for the last few months. There's been a lot of murkiness surrounding how those occurred and what they are. Um, I think it's pretty easy to connect the dots and say, as it turns out, I think maybe adding 70 pounds to a small frame and then swinging as hard and as fast as possible all day, every day might have consequences, might put a lot more strain on your back and your hip and your knee and your ankle and your wrist than your body has been prepared for. So again, he's been out for months with these injuries. Um, he withdrew from the PGA this week. He shows up and he's going, now I'm going to play and look at these launch monitor numbers. And meanwhile, everybody's getting a little uncomfortable because we're like, uh, you've had pretty traumatic injuries in the recent past. And now you're back to just trying to mash the ball as hard and as fast as you can with this bulk up frame. Is this a good idea? So now he withdraws again. The, the future is kind of up in the air and we're going, what does... Bryson's career looked like moving forward. A couple years ago, we're hailing him as the revolutionary, the man who's transforming golf. Oh, he won the U.S. Open, and he did it with brute force, and he's bashing the ball around, and now we're years later, and that was really the only tournament that you would point at and say, this is really good, but what has happened the rest of the time? And actually, if you're looking at it with clear eyes, you go, for all the beefing up, Bryson was a better and more successful golfer as a skinny person. He just was. He had more sustained success on the PGA Tour. He didn't have the one major, but his track record was just better. He was in contention at more tournaments than when he was a beef boy. He was winning more tournaments than when he was a beef boy. He was not battling injuries as he now is as a beef boy. How do you find the alignment of body and mind? The other person that really has me thinking about the physical nature of things, but also how you can overcome a lot with your mind but only to a certain extent, is Tiger Woods, who is the greatest competitive mind in the history of sports, for my money. He's won a U.S. Open on a torn ACL and a fractured leg. He's won tournament after tournament when his personal life is just going up in flames in a sport that demands your entire focus, that you can't have these things that are going on outside, whether it's something wrong with your body or something wrong with your life. And yet he somehow bucked every trend that I personally know to be true with my own life in golf. Just able to somehow, almost in a sociopathic manner, wall off the competitive mind from your real life mind. And even for him, there comes a point when the mind can only do so much. At uh, the PGA, he makes the cut, which is an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> it just really is. Just like it was at the Masters when he's can barely walk, he's limping around, he's grimacing after everything, he can't bend down to read putts, his body has been completely remade, and he makes the cut again. He's two for two, playing in the two tournaments that he has, two majors, incredibly competitive fields, and he's there for the weekend. The PGA at Southern Hills and outside of Tulsa, he's withdrawing after the third round when he shoots a 79, and it just looks like his body's ready to disintegrate at any moment. And as I look for connecting points between my own life and what I'm watching, I'm going, I don't know how you're even showing up and doing this because for me, 
playing with even the smallest injury, it's so damn hard to do in golf because first and foremost, it alters your swing. I played with a random little blister on my hand. I played with a shoulder that's hurt. I played with a back that's come back from injury or a leg that's not feeling great. And every single time in some minute way, you're altering your swing and now it's doing completely different stuff. And then you're trying to overcorrect, but you're also cognizant of your injury. And it just, it's a cocktail of disaster. And so to watch him go out and hack out these rounds, I'm going, this is, this is incredible stuff just to make the cut. But then even for Tiger, again, the greatest competitive mind in sports history, there comes a certain point where it's just like, I can't go on, you know? So much like Bryson, you're going, what, what does his career look like moving forward? This is a lot of the talk coming out of the PGA Championship. Because I think there's a million, trillion Tiger fans. And they're going, is this just the new reality? Should he retire? Should he not? What's going on here? Does his body improve with, improve with time? Or is this just what it is moving forward? For a person with a completely remade back, a knee, a hip, and these legs. You don't know, right? Sometimes the body is just not willing to cooperate and you have to move into a different phase of existence. So on the Stanley Cup side, there's a game specifically, game three of the Avalanche Blues series that got me thinking about this because you don't need reminders in the sport of hockey that this is just a grueling physical test. You don't need reminders that the Stanley Cup playoffs themselves, it's the ultimate war of attrition. Terrifying yet magnetic viewing on every single night. You don't need reminders, but just every hockey game, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs, is that. It's just increased physicality. The hitting is off the charts. Just people are crashing everything. It's, again, terrifying yet magnetic. So in that game, there's two injuries in the first period. Jordan Bennington, that's the controversial one just because Nazem Kadri is involved, but I don't think there was anything going on there that... If anyone else was involved, people would just go, yeah, whatever. It's just a normal hockey play. Him and Callie Rosen go tumbling into the net. Apparently, Jordan Bennington had some sort of pre-existing injury. He's out of the game. He's now out of the series. Controversy on the blue side. I would be angry if I was, I was them for sure. The other injury within that first period, the one that makes me much more sad because I'm an Avalanche fan, is Sam Gerrard, who had the best playoff game I've ever watched him play in game one against St. Louis. As the Nashville series wore on, him and Josh Manson, his defensive partner, really seemed like they were starting to find some good chemistry. That manifested, especially in game one, as Gerard was off the charts, as Manson was scoring the overtime game winner. First period of game three, Gerard gets absolutely crushed behind the net by Ivan Barbashev. He's down. I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. He's bleeding all over the ice. It looks like he's got his head gets crunched. I'm going, man, that was a heavy hit. Hope he doesn't have a concussion. Hopefully he doesn't have some sort of facial injury like Nathan McKinnon suffered earlier this year against the Bruins. What's going on here? They take him to the hospital. They report that during the game. As soon as the game's over, Jared Bednar comes out, the coach for the Avalanche, and he's like, yeah, Sam Gerrard is out for the playoffs with a broken sternum. A broken sternum. Now, I can say I have heard many injuries. I've heard of many injuries in professional sports and in hockey. I have never heard this one. Because just thinking of the amount of force that has to go into a human hitting another human in order to break their sternum is pretty much incomprehensible to me. <laughs> um, again, I can understand many things in the world of sports. 
because I've watched a lot or because I just have participated at an amateur level and I like to think about how it applies into my own life. I just can't imagine the physicality of a Stanley Cup playoff game. It's one of those things that exists in a different realm. And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have a pretty high paid tolerance for a normal individual. I would just, if Sam Gerrard is getting hit by Ivan Barbashev and it's breaking his sternum, if you put me into the same situation, death is the least of my worries as to what would occur. <laughs> but that's the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, it's a war of attrition. Every single year, whoever it comes out and wins the Stanley Cup, you go back and you say, here are the moments of adversity that you had to weather. This person was out for the playoffs because of this injury. This person as well. This person was out for this series. You go down the list, every single Stanley Cup winner for all of time. I go back to when Colorado won the 2001 Stanley Cup, their last championship, their very best skater, Peter Forsberg, my favorite player of all time. He has his spleen ruptured in the second round series against the LA Kings, which gets taken to seven games. The Avs host game seven on home ice. I'm nervous as can be. Forsberg has a great game. Avs win going away. I'm celebrating right after the game. They come out and they're like, Peter Forsberg had to go to the hospital for emergency surgery. They had to take out his spleen because it was ruptured. He actually been playing with that for the last couple of games. Risking possible death, which is insane. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm glad he's okay, but now we have two more series to go without our best skater. That's part of what happens in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The abs buckled down. They said, all right, we need a little bit more from the top. They got that. Patrick Wall was great in net. Joe Sackick was the best player in the Stanley Cup finals against New Jersey. There you go. Look at Tampa Bay winning their first Stanley Cup without one of their very best skaters, Steven Samkos, comes and plays a couple minutes against the Stars in one Stanley Cup finals game. That's just, again, this is, I could go down the list of every Stanley Cup champion ever. This is what this sport is. Battle against your body over and over and over and over again. Now, also an incredible mental test because I'll point to another example within the sport right now. I'm recording this before game four of the Lightning and the Panthers. So by the time this is over, either the Lightning will be up 3-1 in the series or the series will be done and the Lightning will have slept. The Florida Panthers, the president trophy-winning Florida Panthers out of the playoffs. And the mental side has really, it's flown to the forefront for me with this Florida Panthers team. Because you can see they're on an individual level and on a team level, how they're working in unison with one another when they're out on the ice. You can see the gears churning within their heads. And you can see them trying to think through this lightning series with no answers in sight. You saw it in the Capitol series. They were able to survive that because the Capitals are not as good as the Tampa Bay Lightning. And they do not have somebody in net like Andre Vasilevsky. And they do not have a team that is so weathered and so understanding of playoff hockey that they're willing to do anything and everything in order to win. The thing that has really jumped out in this series and actually throughout the playoffs with Tampa is they currently lead the playoffs in blocked shots. Tampa Bay which is interesting because Tampa Bay is always pointed to as one of the high-skill teams that can murder you at 5-on-5. Five five. They can murder you on the power play. Got a lot of gifted individuals. Look up and down the lineup. Oh, boy, a lot of talent. And they do have that, and all of that is true, and they have murdered Florida on the power play. But the thing that really jumps out is you're talking about the mental side and what you're willing to sacrifice. Just A, how you're willing to play but then B, what you're putting yourself in position to do 
The shot blocking thing is another part that I personally could not comprehend because you step in front of 90, 95 mile an hour shots over and over again. You're going to get hurt. Go back and watch game two of the series when it seemed like half of Tampa Bay's roster, starting with Corey Perry in warmups, was leaving the game because he's getting drilled by pucks. And then two more people are going down in that game and have to leave. But you're just seeing this commitment to, we know this is a war of attrition. We know that if we block enough shots, we will get injured. We also know those pucks are not getting on net. And we know that when they do squeak through, Vasilevsky's going to stop them. That's how they're up in this series. Florida, who wants to play run and gun hockey, who averaged over four goals in the regular season. You can see their minds almost breaking because that's not available. And they're also going against what has amounted to a defensive juggernaut. Again, not something you would normally associate with this Tampa team. Sometimes you got to morph within the playoffs. Sometimes a series demands different things. That's where we're at. If I'm Florida, I go, okay, we lose this. This is one of those things that you need to use as a learning experience. This is how you expand your mind. We have all the physical tools and gifts. Look up and down their forward unit. They have Bobrovsky and Spencer Knight in net. They have Aaron Ekblad and a lot of other gifted defenders, even if they've struggled. Mackenzie Weger, Gustav Forling, all that kind of stuff. You need to use this as a learning experience because the body is there, but the mental capacity and what you need to learn and do, it's not. So let's go back to golf. Let's go back to the PGA Championship as we talk about the mind. And I want to talk about two people specifically. And these two people were definitely having a say in who won and who lost the PGA Championship this year. The first is Rory McIlroy, who confounds and perplexes pretty much everybody who follows the sport. And we all watch and go, how many different times can we watch the same major from Rory McIlroy? How many times? There's going to be one scintillating round in there. This was the first round at Southern Hills. There's going to be a dud in there. There's going to be two rounds where, and this includes his Sunday round, where he gets the least possible out of his ball striking. If you were watching him on Sunday, it was immaculate striking. I mean immaculate. The physical tools, what his body can do on a golf course is off the charts. Just these high towering draws off the tee over and over. And he's putting himself in perfect position. He's hitting these just majestic approaches, long irons, short irons, everything. And yet you get to the end of the round, you go, how, how did you not shoot the best round in the field? How did you not just swamp the field? It's the story of the last 30-some-odd majors ever since Rory's last win back in 2014. Now. It's that the physical gifts abound, but there's just something. You can't define it. If you golf, you know that that exists within your own mind and it's different from every other golfer, but there's just something that's not clicking upstairs. There's just something. So he's there in the leaderboard, but he's not having a say in who wins ultimately on Sunday. Now, Southern Hills, the course itself, was just, it was a great course as a major championship test. I thought that, a lot of people thought that. I came across this from Jason Sobel of the Action Network. In my mind, the true measure of a major venue is the ability to test all aspects of a player's game. This one did exactly that, as every single player inside the top eight gained strokes in every major category, off the tee, tee to green, approach, around the green, and putting, end quote. Now, that's a sweet stat, and I 100% agree with everything Jason Sobel is saying, 
and I would actually add one more thing to that, which you cannot measure via a metric. All aspects of golf, and, and again, the true measure of a major venue is to test all aspects of golf. All aspects includes the mental side, which you can't measure. There's no strokes gained or lost number that you can plop up and say, this is, look at all these stats from Rory there in the positive, but the mental side that you lost here because just what's going on there, you know? You can't measure it that way. But sometimes you watch it and you just know. And if you've golfed yourself, and especially if you've golfed and played at a more competitive level, even as an amateur, you understand there's certain components to a golf round that only people who golf can really understand at the truest level. So, Mito Pereira, the dude who looked for a very long time like he was going to win the PGA Championship. He will be the takeaway for me from this PGA Championship. I think a lot of people will look at Justin Thomas and the way he stormed back and just some of the shots he was hitting down the stretch in the playoff. Absolutely. Like, you applaud him, great. I always look at golf on the mental side because that's just what I value the most about my own game and what I'm most intrigued by. And so anytime I see it at a professional level, just either a complete deterioration or just this incredible perseverance on the mental side, that's usually what draws me the most. So Mito Pereira was that. His, his Sunday round, I mean, he's got a three-shot lead going into the day. It was shaky, but he was just keeping it together. He was scraping, he was scrapping. I actually texted that to my friend at one point who's texting me about him. I'm going, I'll give him props. You know, he hits an incredible curling par putt on 16 to save a hole that was not played well. And it looks like, okay, maybe he's going to get it. On 17, hole that a lot of people were making birdie on, short drivable par four. He's got just a pretty reasonable up and down look. Chip up the green and put it in. And he hits a chip that you just know, you just know nerves are involved. Because if you've been in a situation like that, you're overthinking things and you're going, ah, this lie, okay, the grass is short, it's a little tight. All right, uh, just kind of muscle it up there, get it within 12 feet, 15 feet, and you know, try to make the putt. You're less thinking how you normally think, and you're going, I can chip this in, just give it a good stroke, all that kind of stuff. So he leaves it, you know, 10 feet, 12 feet short. He puts it up, one more revolution of the ball, and it's going into the hole. Just hangs right on the front edge, which is fine, but at the same time, you're going, ah, the margins in sports are small. Is there going to be a world where he doesn't make par on 18 to secure the victory? And he's looking back on just this little miniature revolution, one more, and it's in the hole. And he's got a two-shot lead going in 18. Now, this is where the real, I don't want to call it fun because it was actually quite hard to watch. And I say this as somebody who had multiple head-to-head bets against Mito Pereira that 18 ended up clinching for me. But he's going to 18, one of the very best finishing holes that I've watched at a major championship. It's sensational. Incredible tee shot. There's a creek on the right side. It's got different plateaus on the fairway. If you want to cut off more and make your approach better, you got to aim down the left side with a driver because if you push it too far right, you're in the creek. If you want to play more conservative, but then leave a harder approach shot into a green that looks pretty scary as well, you pull something shorter, a three wood, you stay left, you're fine. So he's got this shot going into 18 and my heart would be pounding. I would be just, I would be a puddle of nerves. I wouldn't even be able to hit the ball three feet because I'm an amateur golfer and I wouldn't be prepared for that moment. (laughs) But Mito Pereira, who we're learning things about as the broadcast is going on because this is the 100th ranked PGA player in the world and he's never won a PGA Tour event. He just barely came out last year. This is his first start in a PGA championship. We don't know a lot about him. They have his buddy, Joaquin Neiman from Chile. He's there on the broadcast and he's giving us stats about him. 
a really strange component to golf that is very different from all other sports. You would never get to the end of the NFL playoffs or the Stanley Cup playoffs or the NBA playoffs. And suddenly the most important person to that game, you know nothing about. And you're going, who, who is this skater? Who is this basketball player? I've never even heard of him. I don't know. What's his backstory? What, what are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? So in real time, down the back nine, Joaquin Neiman's talking about Mito Prayer and he's going, yeah, he and I grew up together and he used to do this. And here's a story about when we were junior golfers and this is really cool to watch. And man, I'm sick as I can be to my stomach. And I didn't know it was this hard to watch. I'm way less nervous watching than I am playing. So Mito Prayer storms up to the 18th tee. And in the blink of an eye, a, a dude who had been moving at a glacial pace throughout the day, just taking his time, all that kind of stuff. Probably just wanting to make sure, hey, slow down, breathe, think things through. He screams up to 18. He suddenly has driver in hand. He's suddenly hitting. The ball's suddenly racing towards the creek. And it happened in just a blink of an eye. Seemed like there was a minute more of time that should have taken place before he was hitting a shot. And yet on the broadcast, they're going, he's, he's hitting. And the follow-through looks atrocious. He, he doesn't, he's holding it off. I don't know what was going on there. But there's a million questions going through my mind, through every viewer's mind. You're going, why is he going so fast? Why is he hitting driver? What was that finish? What was this abbreviated hold off that promotes a left to right ball flight? What's going on here? So now the ball's in the creek. And everybody's stunned because we're going, well, wait, hold on, wait a second. And then Will Zalatoris is hitting a huge par putt on 18 in front of him to get into the clubhouse tied with Justin Thomas at five down. So now Mita Pereira, who's technically one shot in front of both of them, but has now dropped a shot in the creek and has this incredibly hard approach shot with a tree in front of him that he's probably going to have to try and bail out left or hit this huge sweeping cut from way far back. He's got to do this to try and salvage a bogey to make the playoff. Now I'm starting to feel a little bit sick because I'm just like, oh, this is, this is what I would do. I would do it even more catastrophically, but this is just something that I would do. Because I know when things start to go south in golf, your heart starts racing really fast and it's just really, really hard to think. Again, it's hard to describe that if you have not been in a situation, even on a smaller level. That's just how golf works. You start to feel an adrenaline rush. And you're just going, I got to, I want to get out of here. I just, I need to get out of here. Go, go, go get the hell out of here. You play a hole poorly. And sometimes you hit a putt up by the hole and I'm really methodical in how I putt. And I don't even like tapping in a two footer past the hole. And sometimes there are certain scenarios in a tournament or in a big money game. And I'm going, I want to just go up and bang at home to secure my double bogey. And instead I'm like, nope, slow. You got to slow down. You got to slow down. Do the things you always normally do. Mark it, let other people putt, you'll calm down, your heart will not be beating 100 beats per minute, all that kind of stuff. It's just hard to think. And sometimes, even despite knowing that, I go up and I just try to hit it in, and every once in a while, I miss a two-footer, and I go, what in the hell am I thinking? <laughs> it makes me think back to Tiger Woods' video game. Way back in the day when I used to be a video gamer, this is 20 years ago or so, original PlayStation, Tiger Woods EA Sports. And they had this cool uh, thing at the time that they introduced to the game where when you had a big putt or a, a big shot, your paddle would start to vibrate and then it would start to mimic a, a really profound heartbeat. Boom, boom, boom. 
which I just was like, oh, this is cool. Wow, we have technology to do this. And I didn't think about it in terms of it's trying to simulate a more real golf experience, which once I got into golf years and years later and then really started playing competitively, I understood, oh, this actually is a real thing. That's kind of weird. But when you're in big moments, your heart beats faster and it is harder to think and you breathe differently. And part of the test of golf is possessing the mental faculties to just say, no, all right, calm down, breathe, focus, and do the thing that you know that you can do physically. So prayer bangs one left. He's out in the rough. He's got a pitch across the green to get up and down to go to a playoff. And I'm sure you, I, everybody who watched was just like, there's no way this is happening. He hits a chip off the green. It was atrocious. You could tell that he just, he, he wasn't thinking. He couldn't, I'm sure his mind was just, it was in a place that my mind has been on the golf course with a lot less stakes. I'll say it that way. So then he puts one up there. He's got a short putt to secure double bogey. He's already out of the playoff. He brooms it in. I mean, I thought for certain it was going out. It luckily grabs the edge of the hole and swallows in and he's walking off and you're just like, I feel, I actually feel genuinely sick for that person. So to Mito Prayer's credit, he did a bunch of interviews afterwards. He put on like a really brave face, if you want to call it that. And whatever he was feeling inside, he kept to himself as far as outward displays of emotion. But he had a lot of quotes that I think really perfectly summarized what it is to play really competitive major championship golf. It's, in my mind, the perfect summation of this is the crucible of what golf is, even at an amateur level, now times it by a million when you understand the stakes are as high as they can possibly be. So there are three different ones that I want to read from Mito Prayer. Here's the first one. Today, I was really nervous. I tried to handle it a little bit, but it's really tough. Here's a second one. I thought I was nervous the first day. Then, I thought I was nervous the second day. Then, I thought I was nervous on the third day. But the fourth day was terrible. And here's the last one. The one that really stood out to me. And I go, look, dude. <laughs> Again, I come from a very different place when it, when it comes to golf but I understand this particular feeling, even though I've never, I'll never be within a million years of what a PGA championship setup and, and playing feels like. I understand this. This is the quote. You have so much pressure in your body. You don't even know what you're doing. So <laughs> there's a lot to take in there. And all of those quotes just, they make me think, they make me go, uh, yeah, this sport, this sport is grueling in ways that I think people come sometimes scoff at on the physical side, but it's real, you know? There's a lot of strain that is placed upon your body from this repetitive motion and trying to generate as much torque as you can again and again and again in the same way. But the real crucible of golf, as long as your body can hold up, which it won't always, go ask Bryson, go ask Tiger. Some days, go ask me. But the real crucible when your body is firing and you have all the physical gifts at your uh, disposal a real thing or whether it's Rory, whether it's me prayer, it's just the mental side of the game is as confounding. And sometimes it seems as unsolvable as anything you will ever come across. So there's a million things going on in the world of sports, as you can tell, 
Uh, and I want to talk about one player specifically. We're going back to hockey. This is kind of a bounce back and forth episode. But there's one player right now who I'm just watching every other night and I'm going, this is what it means when you find that equilibrium between your physical abilities and the mental side of your sport. Connor McDavid, Edmonton Oilers. He is, I know I've slobbered over a lot of people over the course of this season. I've slobbered over Austin Matthews and Kel McCarr and Nathan McKinnon. Um, Connor McDavid is the best hockey player in the world right now. He is appointment viewing. He is one of the most gifted athletes in sports, any sport. Piecing it all together in real time. How that works in unison with your mind. How you solve things when you have the very best physical abilities if your mind is willing and able. And how those two things click together. I watch, actually I've watched every Connor McDavid game of these playoffs so far, but I've been watching this Edmonton Calgary series quite closely because it's been awesome hockey. Just fire wagon end-to-end rushes starting game one when it's a 9-6 games. And, and it's gone on through the last two as Edmonton has won in games two and three. And game three is he's just from the get-go. It's every single game. It seems like it started in game six of the LA series when the Oilers were down 3-2 and they had to win the next two games. And McDavid said, don't worry, I got you. I know this is a sport normally that you don't point at and say, like basketball, you just need the best player on the ice, you'll win. Somehow McDavid's breaking down that barrier. He's going, I'm going to be the best player on the ice. And because of that, and solely that, we are going to win. He dominates LA in six. He dominates LA in game seven. He's been doing the same thing to Calgary. That's why they're up 2-1 as of this recording. So Sunday, I'm watching him. And he's just, from the get-go, he's flying up and down the ice. He has this pirouette move right out in one of his early shifts. He's going 100 miles an hour. He gains the zone. It looks like he's taking it to the side around the outside of the face-off circle. And suddenly, he's pirouetting back in at, at, at full speed. He's pirouetting back to the center of the ice and the defenseman is just flummoxed because they're going, there's, but that's not a possible, you can't do that. Then he's just throwing these passes through people and he's just seeing the ice in a way that even if he wasn't this top level skater speed person that is as bad as good as I've seen, just his vision right now and the way that he understands what is going on in the ice, how to elude hits, how to set up teammates, how to score himself. It's, it's astounding. So the game ends, he scores Grundle more points. There's all sorts of praise being heaped on him right now. You know, I come across a tweet from Cam Robinson who's going, the most points per game in a playoff in a single postseason all time. And this is starting at a minimum of 10 games. So at least you have a reasonable sample size. Right now, as of game three of the Calgary series, McDavid's at 2.3 points per game. He has 23 points through 10 games. The only two higher than him, it's Wayne Gretzky in 1985 with 2.6. Wayne Gretzky in 1983 with 2.3. The two below him, Mario Lemieux 2.27 in 92 and Gretzky at 2.26 in 1988. We're talking about the two most iconic players in the history of hockey, Gretzky and Lemieux. Playing in eras that were just, everybody was scoring goals nonstop. Now, the NHL has had a resurgence recently. This is not the same era. So when you see McDavid listed up there amongst those two players, putting up comparable point per game numbers through 10 games, in an era that has significantly less goal scoring, you start to understand what this individual is doing. So that's why I'm just, there's a lot of reasons I watch sports, but man, Connor McDavid, I'd say go back and watch the second period of game three, or if you watched it against Calgary, you know, 
you know how breathtaking this all is. The speed, the vision, the skating, this almost incomprehensible thing that every shift is a highlight reel. Evander Kane scores a hat trick alone in that period, but it's just that line of him and Drysaddle, who's looking spry again, and McDavid first and foremost, who's just the driving force, the engine, who's gaining entry whenever he wants. He's dancing around defenders. He's setting up shot behind the net, and if somebody comes and tries to cream him, he's immediately gone. He's sending these cross-ice passes. Evander Kane's second goal in that period was just <laughs> McDavid at high speed doing this weird back shuffle, protect the puck, gain entry to the blue line that immediately had the defender on his back, drawing another defender to him, slipping this pass through the crease that was absolutely perfect right on the stick of Evander Kane for another goal. And I'm going, it just, it doesn't get better than that. You cannot possibly understand how to play hockey. That's that mental side with, I know how to play hockey physically. My body, there's a lot of stuff that just goes on autopilot when I have the puck on my stick. That's what McDavid looks like. Now we're seeing this higher level in the highest possible stage, this war of attrition, this, your body's gonna get decimated. Do you have what it takes mentally? All those things. Connor McDavid is one of the reasons that you watch sports. Feel very, very strongly about this. When an athlete with the highest possible physical ability pieces it together with the mental side, there is no limit on what can occur. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Please go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free, comes out every Wednesday morning. You go to chrisrawl.com, you click on the subscribe button, you put your name, actually you put your email address into it. You can give me your name as well if you want, but really what I need is your email address. And then every Wednesday morning, you're gonna get some more things about sports. Thank you, go and enjoy this week. I'll be back on Friday to talk about sports, sports, sports. sports.